This podcast continues my exploration of all things around the Russian invasion of the Ukraine from the compliance and business perspective. Today, we look at energy industries with Lauren Steffi. This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. Well, this is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have back with me my good friend and colleague, Lauren Steffi. Uh, most of you now know Lauren as the guy who covered the Enron trial. But he's done a lot more than that. And one of the things he's done a lot more of is write about the energy industry. So I asked him if he might come on and we could chat about what the Russian invasion of Ukraine might mean for the energy industry, the great state of Texas, and uh, perhaps if there's a world beyond Texas, uh, the world beyond. So, Lauren, welcome back. Oh, hey, Tom. Thanks for thanks for having me back. Lauren, it dawned on me late last week that we had one of the world's largest energy producers attacking a country close to a region that's one of the world's largest energy consumers, that there might be a shortage of energy uh, from and to, and that there's a, I, I have to say, I just saw a lot of opportunity there. I wanna put a war into the business category of creating opportunity, but maybe we could start with, uh, where does Russia come in kind of globally in terms of energy production and then maybe uh, move to where Europe is in terms of energy consumption? Yeah, I mean, Russia is, uh, you know, both in terms of oil and natural gas, uh, one of the biggest producers in the world. They're, they're number two behind Saudi Arabia in terms of oil, and uh, they provide about 40% of the energy for Europe, both oil and natural gas. And You've probably seen if you've paid any attention to what's been going on with, you know, talk of sanctions and things like that. Um, there's obviously a lot of concern in Europe about um, the fact that they're very dependent on Russia for oil and gas. And of course, they use a lot of the natural gas to power their, um, their power plants, you know, for electricity generation. Um, and so uh, it's, that's, that's what's causing a lot of the concern. It's part of the reason you've seen, you know, prices, uh, you know, have rocketed past uh, their eight-year highs, um, you know, oil and gas prices. Uh, we're recording this on uh, February 28th. I think we cracked $100 a barrel earlier today. Um, and that's a barrel, $100 a barrel for um, oil. But the uh, the other thing that really uh, struck me, Lauren, is that um, you, you've been covering this for a long, long time. You and I have talked over the years, uh, watching the ebbs and flows of the energy industry, and something happens and it always comes back. Or we start thinking about it in a more strategic way. Is this one of the times that really strategic thinking is called for? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. I think that one of, the, one of the things that this whole scenario teaches us is, you know, we've had a lot of talk in recent years about energy independence and are we going to be energy independent? You know, and, and I said all along, they're, they're really, you know, we're never going to be energy independent. I, I'm not sure there really is such a thing. I mean, this just reminds us that the global energy markets are very closely linked. And, and what happens in one region, what happens with one producer, one consumer can have far reaching effects. And so, um, you know, I think we have to be more strategic about how do we build a system 
that's more reliable that isn't isn't necessarily going to be bound to you know the the geopolitical gyrations of one you know one person basically um you know it, it's kind of scary when you think about the fact that, that one guy can decide to invade another country and you know it, it sets the entire world on edge so the um the other thing that we've talked about over the years and it struck me once again is there is not one source for energy energy has a variety of sources and it's you know a mix of tools and you can utilize those tools in many ways you can mix and match in some ways part of the whole esg movement i think speaks to that different mix and it strikes me that there could be a remixing of uh, the different tools to be used in a way that both satisfies the esg goals but also satisfies the needs for europe's energy and the energy uh, delivery uh, for the countries that were largely um, dependent on, the, I was going to say the Soviet Union, excuse me, Russia. <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you are going to see a reordering of sorts as a result of this. I mean, I think uh, you've already seen Germany make it pretty clear that they want to, you know, they're, they're going to have a radical change, um, you know, in, in policy and in, in how they view energy. Uh, I think you're going to see other European nations too looking for less dependence on Russia. Uh, keep in mind, you have the huge Leviathan gas field off the, the coast of Israel. There's talk about building a pipeline from Israel, perhaps through Cyprus, directly into Europe. Uh, don't be surprised if that gets stepped up, if those efforts get stepped up now. Um, you know, I think you're going to see uh, it's going to help drive the shift to renewables um, and, and perhaps even, even electric vehicles, certainly in Europe. Uh, the one downside, the one thing that people often forget about with electric vehicles is that, that in order to make the batteries, it requires a lot of minerals that are even more concentrated than oil. So uh, in order to get batteries for electric cars, we actually would increase our dependence on Russia and China uh, for some of those materials. So that's obviously a problem. But, um, you know, I, I do think you're going to see a, a change in the way people look at things. Um, and, and, you know, we may see a change in our own oil industry here in the United States. Calculation or miscalculation by Putin uh, in the invasion, I think, is working on multiple levels. But since we're focusing on energy here, it seems to me he did not fully appreciate uh, that component of the EU and particularly Germany's reaction. How critical is his country's sale of energy for his own uh, balance of payments and the Russian economy? Oh, it's, it's tremendously important. Uh, and the, the Russian economy is, is very, very much beholden to oil. I believe 60% of their, their uh, GDP comes from, from oil and gas sales. So it, it's, a, it's a huge deal. And I think that his, his calculation was, you know, yeah, this will cause prices to go up and, and we'll reap the benefits. You know, they keep in mind, Russia now negotiates with OPEC on, on sort of the global uh, output um, you know, it, 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 they're basically a part of the cartel. Uh, they're not officially a member, but they work in conjunction with OPEC now. And, you know, if you look last month, they agreed to, to raise the output a modest amount uh, here in the next, the next few weeks. I think it's 400,000 barrels a day. Um, you know, so Putin clearly knew if, if that's all we're going to be boosting production and I invade Ukraine, then prices are going to go up and I'll make more money selling oil. I think what he didn't count on is the long-term consequences of what he's done. I think it's been pretty interesting to see, in particular, BP announced that they were selling their stake in Rosneft, which is the Russian uh, state-owned oil company. Uh, Russia has been a huge part of the BP strategy for, for quite a long time. I mean, 
starting back with the original uh, TNK BP partnership that was set up back in the 90s. Um, they've, they've owned a stake in Rosneft since 2013 uh, and, and really clearly saw Russia as a, as a key growth market for them going forward. So for them to sell, and, and basically they said they're getting out specifically because of what Putin has done, uh, you also saw the, the Norwegian oil company, Equinor, they have said they're going to end all their Russian partnerships. I think you're going to see a decline in investment um, in, in Russia's oil infrastructure, which could have long-term effects. You've also seen pressure on some of the service companies like Halliburton, uh, the Ukrainian gas minister, I believe, or Ukrainian gas official, has been pressuring Halliburton to, to pull out of Russia. You know, Russia doesn't have a, a deep technological bench when it comes to a lot of this stuff. They rely on Western companies for some of the expertise for the next level of development. And if that goes away, um, it could it could really set the industry back quite a bit. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that last point because um, uh, I was involved in uh, working for on, on some of those deals for Halliburton back in the first decade of this uh, century. And it seemed to me uh, back then, and, and I wanted to ask if it's carried forward, that the U.S. and U.K. energy companies really brought a level of technical expertise that allowed the Russians to extract the minerals uh, to then sell on the open market, and that that relationship, uh, if you if you took away that technical expertise, as you said, will lead to a deterioration of the physical ability of uh, Russian energy companies to extract medical minerals. Uh, does that sort of um, technical expertise partnership still exist today? Or oh, yeah, did it until people like BP started to pull out? Yeah, I mean, I think it did. That's the real benefit for the Russians. That's the benefit of these partnerships is not only is it the investment of capital, but it's the investment of, of the technical expertise that they don't have, you know, they can't get domestically. Um, and, and I think that that's, uh, you know, that's something that, that could hurt them. Not, it's because it's not just about, you know, the technical know-how, it's about the development of technology over time. You know, if if Russian oil production starts to become higher cost because they're not keeping up with the latest innovations, for example, then that makes their oil less attractive. It, it, you know, it, it could diminish the amount of demand you see in the global market. So over the long term, I think that that's a, that's a big concern for them. Lauren, you wrote an article for Forbes.com that we're going to link to entitled Putin's Ukraine Invasion may finally give U.S. producers the incentive needed to start drilling again. How does or did the invasion uh, perhaps give that incentive, in your opinion? Well, one of the things we've been watching with U.S. producers, you know, if you go back five years ago, um, we had all this oil coming out of the Permian Basin. And, and basically, I and, and others said, oh, you know, the U.S. has entered this era now where, where the shell producers are basically putting a ceiling on the market. So, you know, when prices get up to $60, $70 a barrel, they're going to open the taps in the Permian Basin and, and just start pumping all they can, and it's going to cause the price to go down. And so, you know, we sort of envisioned a scenario where, you know, the U.S. is putting, putting a lid on, on prices, if you will, and the Saudis are supporting the floor. They won't let oil go below a certain level, you know, $30 or whatever. Um, and, and that all worked up until about 2019 when a lot of investors decided that, you know, it was great that we were having all this drilling and everything was blowing and going in the oil patch, but they weren't making any money because the companies were basically spending all their cash flow on new drilling to kind of keep everything going. And, and since that time, and, and with the weakened demand from the pandemic, 
investors really kind of required a lot more financial discipline from oil companies. And so even now with prices at these levels, you're not really seeing an uptick in new drilling. Um, companies are making money because a lot of what they're doing is they're drilling what are called ducks, uh, drilled but uncompleted wells. So it's basically like they have a, it's kind of like a savings account, right? They've got all these wells that they drilled previously um, and they, they simply go in and open them up and they can pump oil out and they can get the money from that. But eventually you deplete those accounts, right? And, and so the question is, are we going to see companies start to, to explore for oil again? Uh, and we're starting to see some private companies in particular that don't have to answer these investors um, beginning to open up new, new drilling areas, especially in fields that maybe they abandoned, higher cost fields that they abandoned a few years ago. Um, think places like the Anadarko Basin of Oklahoma, the DJ Basin in Colorado, things like that. And I think you may start to see, you know, if prices keep going up at some point, it's still the oil patch. And, and you know, it's very hard for these guys to sit on the sidelines when they see prices at this level. So I, I think, you know, we may reach the point where it, it gets us drilling again, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, one of the things in your article I wanted to ask about, which was the uh, uh, share buyback by large energy companies. Do you see that as a part of a strategic realignment or is that just an ongoing uh, financial engineering that these firms are using just happened at this time? I think it's more a consequence of this phenomenon I'm, talk I'm talking about where you know, the investors don't wanna see these companies going out and spending that money on new drilling. They want it to be returned to them, the shareholders. And so, um, you know, of course, most oil companies prefer stock buybacks. It's, it, it also boosts invest, I mean, uh, executive compensation at the same time it boosts investor returns. So they tend to favor that. But you know, we've also seen some companies increase their dividends. Um, you know, the cash that they're making from selling these, these wells that they already have in their inventory, uh, you know, from the production from, from those wells, um, you know, most of that cash is going back to investors. It's not going into capital budgets and new drilling programs. And so, uh, yeah, you're seeing some really high levels of stock buybacks at this point, especially from the, from the major uh, oil companies. And, um, you know, how long that continues, again, depends on how long investors are willing to sit there and you know, uh, let the money roll in before they start saying, hey, maybe we should be trying to capitalize on on this, you know, $100 oil that we have. So one of the things about the production of oil and gas, it's not just the production, it's infrastructure, it's pipelines, it's transportation, it's shipping, LNG uh, shipping containers, it's uh, processing facilities, what we used to call petrochemical plants, all yeah. of those things. Do you see that perhaps now we could start having a discussion on upgrading the infrastructure part of our energy industry. I know it's not exciting, uh, but it is uh, an army, uh, you know, marches on its feet and energy in many ways uh, can only go as far and as fast as infrastructure allows it. Can we perhaps start having that discussion again about upgrading our infrastructure? I, I think that's a really challenging discussion to have, even in this environment, because if you look, you know, it's very hard to get a pipeline built these days because there's an incredible amount of environmental opposition to it. It's become the, the fashionable thing if you're if you're an environmentalist, uh, you know, pipelines are the new thing to get out and protest, right? You can throw yourself in the in the you know the right of way where the pipeline's gonna go and have a big dramatic, you know, event and TV cameras come out. And so it's kind of become the new thing. And it's virtually impossible to get, uh, I shouldn't say virtually, but it's it's very, very difficult to get new pipelines built. Um, they are under an incredible amount of scrutiny and, and regulatory oversight now. 
Um, but but pipelines are are cheaper and easier than something like a petrochemical plant or refinery, where you know, especially if you're talking about a refinery, just forget the siting issues. Just the fact that you know, if I'm an oil company, am I going to spend you know ten billion dollars uh, for on something that may not pay out for twenty years? Um, you know, is there going to be the demand for oil and gas in the future to support that? I think that's a really really tough equation. So. Um, and, and keep in mind, the other side of the equation is electricity and the fact that we need a better electricity infrastructure because as electricity demand increases, and it's going to, um, you know, we don't have the really large transmission lines that we need to move electricity around. Even here in Texas, um, we have a very hard time getting electricity in West Texas where it needs to go, um, you know, from the wind farms and the solar arrays and that kind of thing. And so I, I think um, there's a lot of infrastructure spending that needs to be done. It's probably not going to go as much towards oil and gas infrastructure as some other areas. Let me take a step back to uh, maybe a 30,000 foot look at some bigger strategic issues. Could uh, another player such as perhaps Pemex see an opportunity here to come in and have a strategic realignment where uh they somehow move to uh, take advantage of the situation, either by pairing with uh, more sophisticated production companies or kind of opening the spigot in their country and exporting more uh, energy than they normally would? Well, I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about the limited technical expertise, and I think that that is, you know, Pemex is a, is a great example of that. Um, they've been very reliant on, on American uh, technology, American service companies, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and they're still kind of behind the curve in terms of production technology, keeping pace with, with the rest of the industry. Um, I, I really don't think that they have the, the means or the, the resources or even the desire to really uh, capitalize on this in a major way. And of course, the big thing is, you know, Mexico would have an opportunity to boost their oil production, but they would have to, you know, allow U.S. companies or, or foreign companies to participate in that production, and that is something that constitutionally they they do not want to do. Their their you know their their constitution actually protects oil as a resource of the people, and so it has been very problematic. There's been a number of attempts over the years to to open things up in Mexico, and it it just never happens. Um, unlike you know it's it's hard for us to believe here in America, but that's uh, you know the average Mexican citizen gets very upset when you start talking about letting foreign companies participate in the oil business. Uh, it's seen as a, a threat to their national security. And, and so um, it's a really, really difficult thing to, to get around. I, I don't think you're going to see a major shift there at, at this point. Do you think uh, the administration will uh, change its focus to perhaps seeing energy as a much, much more important strategic asset than even they saw before and, and really engage with the energy industry to come up with some strategy? Or were we still just going to be at odds, button heads. I don't know that I, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm getting kind of old and cynical. I'm not sure that I, I hold out hope for a rational uh, national energy policy. Um, it's something that's been talked about for as long as I've been covering oil and gas, which is, uh, gosh, 30, 35 years now. It's never happened. Um, you know, part of the problem you have right now is, uh, you know, the, the, the far left very much wants to see, um, you know, green energy and only green energy. They don't, they don't, they don't understand why we're still producing fossil fuel at all. Why can't we just switch over immediately? Um, and you've got to balance that interest, of course, on the right. Everybody says, you know, drill, baby, drill. And, and neither of those answers 
are going to get us where we need to be. And so um, I think right now we have a very confused energy policy. Um, you may have noticed that, you know, Joe Biden went to uh, to Scotland and talked about how we were going to make all these, you know, net zero commitments and things like that. And then basically turned around and asked Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. And then beyond that, asked U.S. producers to produce more oil because prices kept going up. Uh, so there's there's kind of a mixed message there. And that's not entirely wrong, uh, oddly enough. I mean, we do kind of need to balance the short-term interest and the long-term. And the only way we're going to develop better renewable energy, better green energy, you know, electric cars and that kind of thing is to, to you know, make that transition by gradually moving away from oil to natural gas and then to other things. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and, you know, we have to keep in mind that our economy is very, very dependent uh, or very heavily influenced by energy prices, as we've seen with the current inflation situation. So we really can't afford uh, to let oil prices just, you know, run to $150 or whatever. It's not going to, there, there isn't the technology to allow us to switch to something else uh, quickly enough to, to offset that. So um, we, we're in a kind of a, a difficult spot right now. Lauren, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on either yourself, the consulting services you provide, or, or uh, maybe uh, some of the topics we've touched upon, what would be the best way for them to uh, find out? Well, you can go to my website, which is uh, quite simply just laurensteffi.com. All right. Well, we're going to link to that in the show notes, as well as your article. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me. I know you're incredibly busy right now. I look forward to continuing this conversation. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greetings and Felicitations got a lot of information out about the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Matt Kelly and I took a deep dive into compliance in the weeds. I'm blogging on it on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, and this podcast talks about the energy issues. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll try to keep you informed.
This is Tom Fox again. I hope from this podcast you understand that our heroes are everyday people who do heroic things. And Mike and Melissa Novelli are two of my heroes because of what they've done with Potastic Friends. Their new facility is a fabulous place for rescue dogs, and they do great work in Las Vegas and Henderson County, helping to uh, give enrichment to the rescued dogs and then helping them move to a forever home. I hope you will consider a donation to Potastic Friends. We're going to link to their site in the show notes. Also, Potastic Friends is listed on the Compliance Podcast Network as our featured charitable organization. I can't really say enough about what they do, and I hope you will join me in supporting Potastic Friends. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you on another episode of Greetings and Felicitations.